John chapter 20. We'll be taking up the text in verse 11. Hear the word of God. But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, Teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But I go, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, and to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. Thus far, the word of God, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let us pray. O Lord our God, as we have assembled before you in worship, as you have received and welcomed us into your presence by the Lord Jesus Christ, Father, through Christ we have received the Spirit. We pray that the person of the Holy Spirit would be at work in us as we continue in our worship. Lord, govern our hearts and minds to be attentive. Grant us understanding. Lord, by your Spirit, equip uh, your messenger as an angel said from the Lord to Open the scriptures, Lord, bless, but a mere man to handle holy and marvelous things. Lord, give us eyes of faith to see Jesus, the resurrected one, Lord. May he be exalted in our midst. May we magnify him. Lord, all those who are yet without understanding of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, would you bless him and understand that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God and that believing they may have life in his name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I know many of you are familiar with J.R.R. Tolkien and his Hobbit and Lord of the Rings series. Some of you perhaps are not. But there's a point in it where Tolkien, as the author, puts a line in Gandalf's mouth prior to the battle at Helm's Deep. As he's leaving his friends, going to find other armies, though they do not understand that he rides away, but he go, before he goes, he tells for his, his friends, look for my coming on the fifth morning, at the break of dawn. And, and so it was when all seemed to be lost at the battle of Helm's Deep, there comes Gandalf with armies from Rohirrim, and a great victory is won. Things happen in the morning, even in the stories of men. Why is that? I think it's because the greatest story of all has the breakthrough, the, the, the tremendous victory comes in the morning. But Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, who not only told of Jerusalem's destruction, he was there and he saw it happen. 
He was there during the siege of Jerusalem. He saw the suffering. He saw the destruction of the city of God and the departure of the remnant into captivity. Jeremiah wept deeply as we read in Lamentations. But all who hope do not have lost hope. The prophet knows that God is faithful and full of mercy. And so he wrote those wonderful words, probably the few words that anyone knows by heart from Lamentations. Jeremiah says this, I recalled to my mind, therefore I have hope. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed. Because his compassions fail not, they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. The mercies of the Lord are new every morning. The disciples have spent Friday night after the crucifixion and the burial of their Savior. It would indicate that uh, the disciples, the men, were not there other than John. But they would have heard of the things even as the sun set. They've spent Friday night in the whole of the Sabbath day. That would be all day Saturday, children, as well as the night that follows Saturday, in deep sorrow and in heartache. They are mourning the one who they've walked with has been crucified on a Roman cross, and he is dead and buried. Their beloved is no longer with them. No doubt they learned of the kindness of Joseph and Nicodemus to take his body down and to lay it in a tomb. So they spent those days, those many hours, filled with doubts, self-accusations, recriminations, and despair over what had happened. As though all hope was lost. The promises that Jesus had made to them They were lost. The words of the promise that Jesus said he would be crucified, but then he would raise again on the third day. The the crucifixion and and the reality of the tomb had drowned out the hope of the resurrection. And even as we see that Sunday morning of the resurrection unfold, they're just lost in it. They don't see and understand, even as we see in the text, particularly with Mary. And so it is. We find ourselves on Sunday, that first day of the week, and the women have returned from the tomb, having gone to continue the process of preparing the body of Jesus for the rest of death. But they've come with a message that's too unbelievable. Remember in one of the other gospel accounts, they thought that the women were crazy. The idea that Jesus himself was raised. Surely they've lost their minds due, due to grief and sorrow. But could it be true? Peter and John ran out to the tomb to see. They've gone to inquire if what the women have reported, particularly as John records it, Mary Magdalene told them. What did they find? An open tomb. We saw this last week. An empty tomb other than the fine linen cloths that have been laid there. What had happened? And that's where we're at in John's account. What had happened there in that morning's hours It's still unclear to them what has happened. We're going to consider the text this morning under three main headings. Mary's encounters, that's plural at the tomb, for she had two. Jesus reveals himself to Mary, and then Mary's report to the disciples. And even as we make our way through this portion, it's still not clear 
fullness has not yet come other than to Mary. So we find Mary's encounters at the tomb, verses 11 through 15. First, let us note Mary's steadfast love. I mentioned last week uh, the remarkable uh, way in which God has dealt with women and, and how he involves women in the story, and particularly this woman, Mary Magdalene, from whom Jesus had cast out seven demons. Verse 11 indicates that Mary must return after telling the disciples that she has must return as well. Perhaps she didn't run. Uh, if she's still thinking it's necessary, she may have been carrying her spices and ointments. But she's come there because when we look at verse 11, Mary stood outside the tomb weeping. She's weeping because she still does not comprehend. In her mind, in her heart, she still believes Jesus is dead. And she returns after telling the disciples what she saw. And now she does as they have done. She's weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and she looked into the tomb. But she some, sees something else. But why has she come again? We learn and back in verse 10 that Peter and John, the disciples, they saw the empty tomb and, and the linens lay there, and they went back home. They were, they were not moved, no doubt filled with wonders. We were told that John believed. The word is that he comprehended and understood, but he does not fully understand the reality of the risen Christ. So here's Mary. For Mary, her master, had been laid in that tomb. It is the most likely that it was there that she may, may learn more of where he now is, having already known the tomb was empty, but she's come back to where he last was. Mary loves Christ. Her love for Christ was constant. Even though she still thinks of him as lost to her, yet she will not desert him. And so she stays at the tomb. John tells us that she was weeping with sorrow over his suffering, which she had witnessed, over his death, it would seem like the other woman she had witnessed. She's weeping for the loss of him whom she loved. She wept because she could not find his body. There's an application there for us. So understand this. Those who see Christ must come with sorrow. Sorrow not weeping for him, but for ourselves. For indeed we are in a pitiable state. Weeping for our own unbelief, our sin, our unworthiness but coming to him who receives such sinners who come in a broken state. Well, then we see Mary's first encounter. She has come back because of her great, great love for Christ, but then she has a counter, an encounter. John records that as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white. Mary's searching for her beloved, but she looks where she knew him to have been last. But her tears did not keep her for searching for Jesus. My friends, if you are searching for Jesus with affliction, you are most likely to find him. It is certain that those who look for Jesus do so because God has worked in them and given them a new heart. Because the scripture makes it clear, apart from the working of God, no man seeks after God. But if you're searching for Christ... God is working, and so it is Mary with a new heart, searches for Jesus because she has that new heart. She has been born from above. She's been born of the Spirit, as we think of Jesus' language to Nicodemus in the night. 
so long before. John tells us that Mary's searching was not in vain. Verse 12 says, she found two angels. Angels, the word means messenger. You will remember that as I was praying for the Lord to illuminate his scripture, for his spirit to bless, I referred to myself as the minister of God, as a heaven-sent angel. For the word angel, which we just have it right from the Greek, almost precisely, angelos, angel, means messenger sent from heaven. And here are two heaven-sent messengers. Ministers of the word are also heaven-sent. Mere men sent by Christ as messengers to the nations with his holy word. So here are these two heaven-sent messengers. They have been sent with a purpose. And they have been sent on a grand occasion. They have been sent to declare to the disciples, to, to declare to those who love Christ and yet they're despairing over his death. They have been sent to announce to them, he is risen. Why do you seek him amongst the dead? He is not here. He is alive. And so Mary finds these two. We're told they're in white clothing, which speaks of their holiness, having come from the presence of God. Matthew reports that the clothing was white. Um, he uses the word that means literally brilliant as snow. You know what that's like. New England morning, you know, you've had a fresh snow overnight, and the sun's come up and it hits it, and you can get snow blindness. Something of the dazzle of the sun striking that brilliant snow. That's the nature of what the clothing of these angels was like. It was not ordinary clothing. It was not clothing fashioned by men. It was clothing from heaven. And so this is what Mary saw. These were the ones that had brought the message. But remember this. It was angels from heaven, so arrayed, holy messengers of God that came to shepherds and announced that Christ was born. And now again, God sends angels to announce that Christ is risen. Well, the angels have a short but important conversation with Mary. They, they ask the question, why are you weeping? Why is Mary weeping? Because she still thinks she has lost the Savior. She does not understand. The fullness has not hit her. And indeed, her, their question is, is something of a, a mild rebuke for Mary. The reality is she has no cause for weeping. He's risen already. It's the reality. That's why she sees a tomb empty. That's why they're seated where Jesus had lain. He's not been moved. He is raised from the dead. And here her answer is the same as she told the disciples when she found them in verse 2. Having come back from the tomb, she ran and came to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. The, the angels asked her, Woman, why are you weeping? What does she say, verse 13? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. In her mind, the only solution is somebody has removed the dead body of Christ. That's still what's, that's her paradigm. She's stuck there because what has happened is so incredibly unique, so unheard of. Yes, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, but Jesus was alive and he was the miracle worker. And it was a glorious miracle. He was the one who worked him. And now he's dead. Who then shall do it for him? And you can understand why there's a cloud of misunderstanding over them. She so can only conclude that somebody's taken the body. But then, 
I suspect she heard someone approach her, someone come up behind her. Now when they had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. And she did not know it was Jesus. That might have been better translated, but the, the Greek little particle there, it can be and or but. Sometimes it means now. It's a translation decision. Um, you just think of the context. But she didn't know that it was Jesus who had come up before her. So Mary has her second encounter. Now listen here before we go to our next point, because she does not understand who this is. Mary's having an encounter, and as the text reveals to us, she thinks that her encounter is with a gardener. It is Jesus, though unknown to Mary, that now speaks. We remind him of the words in Hebrews 1. God, who has various times and in various ways spoken times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these days spoken to us by the Son. Mary is about to hear from the Son. She's about to hear he who is the resurrection and the life address her. But Jesus does not make that clear immediately. Mary then asks her a question. In, in some manner, Jesus perhaps describes his voice. Maybe he speaks gruffly with her as Joseph did with his brothers when he's testing them in Egypt as they've come down to find out where they're at. But however it is, Jesus speaks in such a way that Mary does not recognize his voice. Mary's question is the same one that the angels had asked her. Verse 15, woman, why are you weeping? Why are you weeping? It is the question that she will understand when she understands he's risen, that there's no cause for weeping. Why are you weeping? But then Jesus adds to that, whom are you seeking? He gets at her heart. In her heart, she's weeping because she's seeking the Lord. If she cannot find him. She does not know where he is. And though she would be content at this point to find Christ's body, she has a much greater discovery that is about to come upon her. Mary's answer flows from a heart that is still dull with immature faith, as we heard about last week. Immature because their eyes have not been fully opened. The Spirit is still working in them. In verse 15, she, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. What we must see and commend Mary for is she is unwavering in her love for Jesus. She never wavers in that, and it compels her to seek him. She thinks then she has encountered the gardener. This is consistent with what we saw in the earlier chapter, verse 41, that the tomb was in a garden. And apparently it was a, a, such a sizable garden that Mary would have expected to see a gardener. So she encounters this one she doesn't recognize, and assuming that the gardener who keeps the garden is the one that she has come upon. An application before we go on, go on. Let this be good instruction to us all whenever our hearts fall into darkness. That does at times become us. Sometimes the realities can overshadow, uh, our situation can overshadow the realities that are true, that Christ is king, that he is really ruling and raising. And sometimes in our pilgrimage, we come under dark shadows when we cannot see the sun. Though the cares of this world, the guilt, the shame for our own sin, and any other thing should blot out the face of God from the eye of faith, seek him. Keep 
seeking him. Even in your weeping, keep seeking him. Keep knocking with all your effort to once more behold the Redeemer. For your seeking and your knocking will not be in vain. Jesus has promised that when we do so, we will find him and the door will be open to us. So Mary's had these two encounters at the tomb that morning. First with the angels, second with the one she's supposed to be the gardener. But then we come to the second point. Jesus reveals himself to Mary. Mary is about to discover what she has not expected. Verse 16, Jesus who's been speaking to her then says, Mary. This is pretty remarkable. This revelation, uh, speaking to her, he makes himself known by calling her name. Remember, in the scriptures we're told, our names are written on his hands. When Jesus went to the cross, he bore our names and our sins as he suffered before the Father. He knows you, believer, intimately. He knows you by name. And we're told in Revelation, I believe it is, that God has given us a name only known to us and to our God. So Mary is spoken to. This is a moment that Mary will never forget. Perhaps like that moment when we first believe. Jesus reveals himself. This revelation, again, is very much like the fulfillment of Joseph's revelation to his brother. Joseph, who means his name means Savior, is the Savior of Israel in that day. When Israel is in bondage in Egypt, even as we are in bondage of sin, here is Jesus coming as the true Joseph to deliver his people. And there's that moment, it's one of my most favorite moments in Scripture, when Joseph makes himself known to his brothers. And he weeps, and they weep, and they embrace one another. Oh, what a moment it is. And here, they had no idea. It was completely unexpected, and so it is for Mary. When he calls her, when Jesus calls her by name, and it's an unexpected encounter, joy and wonderment. Here's something interesting. This is the first and only time that Jesus calls a woman by name. Even his mother. Remember John 2. He said, woman. This is the only time that Jesus calls a woman by name. Mary. In the Greek here, it's Miriam. That's, that's the root of the name Mary. Miriam. And who is it? This is, this is Moses' sister. Her name was Miriam. She's the one who uh, rejoiced and led Israel to rejoice before God after the exodus out of Egypt. And it is not accidental that Jesus calls her Miriam at the precise moment of the new exodus And it is a marker for all students of Scripture forevermore. Jesus' resurrection completes the exodus that God has been unfolding. You see the picture of it through the exodus led by Moses and the mighty miracles that God accomplished in Egypt, his signs and wonders. Here we have this name Miriam spoken by Jesus deliberately and on purpose that we would understand that this is the moment at the resurrection, after Christ has broke free, broken the chains of sin that bind us, delivered us out of the house of bondage, we are free. This is a cause for rejoicing. And indeed, Mary will go again to the disciples. What a moment. This is the new Exodus. We will later see that Jesus will breathe the Spirit on his disciples, just as he did at the beginning of creation on the sixth day when God breathed the life of breath into man whom he had made, our first parents. 
What is Mary's response? It is an exclamation of discovery. What does she say? Verse 16. Jesus has said to her, Mary, Miriam. And she turned and said to him, Rabboni. John explains to you this, his parenthetical, which is to say teacher. But there's something more here. Teacher, rabbi, means teacher. But Mary uses an exalted form of rabbi, Rabboni. My teaching master is the sense of it. Or perhaps my great master. Let us learn from Mary. Yes, Jesus allows us such access to him. He's told us. He's our friend. But my us remember, he ever and forever remains God, the creator and the sustainer. Though he, he opens himself, we have tremendous access to the Lord Jesus Christ, the God of the universe, that we have uh, the ability to come to him with all our burdens and our cares. He welcomes and receives us. And indeed, there's a familiarity, but let that familiarity never leave to disrespect. Here, even Mary, who's overjoyed, she still speaks to Jesus with respect and honor. Rabboni. Her beloved master is found. And it's just as the angels have told him, he's not dead. He has risen. I think it's impossible for us to grasp what that moment was like for Mary. Just before she's been talking to the angels, I'm looking for him. She's weeping. She then just looking at Jesus does not recognize him. She thinks he's the gardener. And then that one who she thinks is the gardener speaks to her in a familiar way, with a familiar voice. She hears her master the eruption of emotions and joy and delight and wonderment and confusion all just blowing forth from her in that moment. Oh, what a moment. Perhaps it's something that we experience when the Lord gives us a new heart. We no longer see him as our judge with the law hanging over us, but as a Savior who has delivered us from sin and death and grave. Mary beholds him in a resurrected body. Mary's seeking might call to mind the diligence of the Shulamite when her beloved in the Song of Solomon had gone out into the night and she goes out looking for him. And then the delight of the Shulamite is but a foreshadowing of Mary's delight, even the delight of the church. Song of Solomon 3, 4, I have found the one I love. And I held him, and I would not let him go. That's what Mary did. She would not let him go. She was clinging to him. Although Mary is greatly comforted to have found, no, to have been found by Jesus. Is that not what happened? She's looking at the tomb for a risen Lord. He comes up to her and reveals himself. The risen one comes to her and makes himself known makes it clear to her. She has work to do for her great master teacher, Roboni. Jesus gives Mary a message, and he sends her on a mission. It's a picture of the church. We are the church, the bride of Christ. He has given us a message, and he has sent us on a mission to disciple the nations, to proclaim that message to those in the world. As Dr. Reeder says, we are to be on mission, on message, 
and in ministry. That's what we're called to do. And here's Mary, just a, a foreshadowing of that. She has a message and a mission. In verse 17, Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me. That's so understandable that she would do that. She's been looking for him. And he has found her. No doubt taking hold of his feet as she worships before him. Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, and to my God and your God. This is the message that Jesus gives to her. And indeed, the church must ever be faithful with the message, uncompromising with the message, for it is in the gospel is the power of salvation. When we mix it and confuse it, we do harm to the name of Christ, and we provide no help to the sinful world. Jesus' words to Mary are not harsh. Do not cling to me, but they are necessary. Mary has received her brother, Mary, um, the other Mary and Martha have received their brother back from the grave. And they were able to embrace Lazarus. It would have been reasonable. And no doubt they rejoiced and hugged and embraced time and again at the, the wonderment of the mighty miracle that Lazarus, the four-day dead man, was alive. And they could keep him for some time until he died yet again. But Jesus' words are her to make clear to her and for his disciples. He's not remaining as Lazarus had. You cannot keep me with you. You cannot cling to me because my mission is to ascend to the right hand of my Father and to rule and reign from there. And thus he says, I have not yet ascended my Father. But there's a foreshadowing there. As Jesus will soon depart and ascend to where he came from, as he told them. For the Father has appointed him to rule over the nations as the exalted God-man, as the Son of God. He has ruled over the nations, but he has taken to himself our humanity, and he is now and forever is the God-man. And God has appointed to him as the God-man, the second Adam, the faithful man, to rule and to rule over, rule over the nations. He is the rock that Daniel saw in his vision that was taken out of the mountain that came rolling down over the nations, toppling them and subduing them and destroying them according to the will of God. And that is why Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father to rule over the nations. Be comforted by that. The nations are in his hand and they are but a drop. Do not cling to me. This is the fulfillment of all that Jesus had taught all along. I've come from my Father but I must ascend to him. I have work to do. So Jesus sends Mary to his disciples to tell them this reality, I am ascending. Notice his language. He doesn't say, I'm ascending to my Father and my God. There's an inclusiveness. Because of the completed work of Christ, the reality that had long been foretold, the saints of, of the past before the cross, God was their God. He was their Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. But you find in the Old Testament, they don't call God Father. It says Christ in his coming, and particularly now upon the completion of his work, that he tells his people, you call God your Father. He teaches us to pray our Father. This is because of what Christ has accomplished. And so the message to the disciples is, I go to my Father and your Father. These are men who had forsaken him. One of them who denied that he knew him three times. And yet he says to tell them, My Father and your Father, my God and your God. Oh, precious child of God, take 
encouragement from this. Have you failed in your walk before the Lord? We all have, time and again, and we will. And yet he still remains our Father and our God. And Jesus has gone to him. And Jesus is still pleased to call us, as he did them, brethren. Jesus ascended on high. And indeed, he serves the church as our great high priest. He's ever living to make intercession for us. This is a great and glorious truth. And the writer of the Hebrews makes much of this, um, just referring to it ever so slightly. But perhaps this afternoon you want to open the scriptures and look there in the midst of Hebrews. We find out we have an advocate with the Father, a great high priest, not like the priests of the order of Levi, who had to bring blood for their own sins. We have one who had no sin, and he offered a sacrifice of himself once for all, and he sat down at the right hand of the Father. His work is complete. This is our high priest, and he is one, as again, as the writer of Hebrews tells us, he's acquainted with our humanity. He knows our limitations. He's walked here in life under the sun. He's experienced what it is to be surrounded by the the conflict of sinners and people living for their own selves. He knows the frailties that we have. And he, as our high priest, he makes intercession for you, for each one of you, knowing you by name. So we're encouraged to come boldly to the throne of grace. Look at the tremendous favor that Jesus has shown Mary. Who is this Mary? This is Mary Magdalene, the one from whom he has cast out seven demons. This is in her past. And once she is united to Jesus by faith, her sins are forgiven and removed. He remembers them no more. And although Jesus although Jesus is not has not opened the offices of elder and deacon to women, Jesus has work for women to do. You are certainly, sisters, enabled to bear witness to those whom you know of the great things that Jesus has done for you. Begin in a home with your children. Encourage your husband. Bear witness to him of the gospel. He will be discouraged. You have that blessed place of a help me to encourage him with the hope of the gospel. Surely this is a great and glorious assignment telling others that Jesus is risen. He's ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he's ruling and reigning, and he will come again someday. Well, thirdly, we see Mary's report to the disciples. She's been given this message, this mission, and Mary goes because we've read that John said Mary Magdalene came, and she told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. She's celebrating what they've been wondering about, what there's been indications of. Now she knows, she says, I've seen him. And she could add, I've held him. He called me by name. What a bold witness that Mary brings. It's Mary, a woman who comes first with it to the disciples with this message. And it was the women who stayed at the cross. And Jesus blesses women in the announcement of the resurrection. Even to the disciples, men like ourselves. She came to them, and she tells them, I've seen the Lord. Have you seen the Lord? 
Oh, not with these eyes. But have you seen the Lord with the eyes of faith? Have you read the Gospels? you hear the Scriptures of who He is? Has the Holy Spirit opened your eyes and given you understanding to see the Lord? Even as Paul writes to the Galatians, you beheld Him crucified, though they were not there. Through the preaching of the Gospel, they, the Galatians, had seen Him. Have you seen the Lord? The Holy Spirit gives you this understanding. He opens your eyes to behold Christ, the exalted one. Mary went and did what the Lord had given to her to do, and it was enough for her. She bears this witness. Dear sisters in Christ, know for a certain that Jesus loves and values women and finds them useful in his kingdom. He has given it to mothers to tell their children of Jesus, his love, his salvation that he has purchased with his death and resurrection. Don't ever despise the days of small ones. And what you do is not a small thing. To share the gospel with your own children. Oh, what a joy and a delight it will be for parents, thinking particularly of mothers, though, that on that great day to look and see their children and to know that even though you stuttered and stammered and you had faulty words, you honored Christ and you told your little ones of Jesus and the Spirit worked in them and they stand as fellow heirs before Christ. Mary gave them the message that Jesus had put in her mouth. I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. This truth that Jesus declared is only made possible, that he could say, my Father and your Father, my God and your God, is only possible because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus alone brings sinners to the Father. It is only through Christ that we can call him Father and that he can be our God. It is in Christ that we draw near to God. We are welcome because he has adopted us in his beloved. Jesus' message should have called to mind for those disciples the many times that Jesus had taught them that he came from the Father and he was returning to the Father. We have seen that in John's Gospel several times. Jesus' message should have called to mind the promise that he had given to them just a few short evenings ago. Thursday evening as they were gathered coming into Friday in the Passover, the trial through the night should have called a message, called in remembrance what he had promised them. John 14, what did he tell them? Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go. He told him he was leaving. I go. I go to prepare a place for you. My God and your God and my Father and your Father. He said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will. Not maybe. I'm not considering it. He said, I will come and receive you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Although he was leaving, it was only for a time. Now we look at it. What's it been? Nearly 2,000 years? What is it the scripture tells us? A thousand years where the Lord is like a day. It seems like a long time to us. But indeed, in God's plan, it is but a brief window, a brief season, and he will come again. 
He was leaving, but it's only for a time. When he gave the church the Lord's Supper, Paul makes it clear that Jesus has called the church to observe and keep this sacrament until Jesus comes again. Every time we come to the table, we remember his death, burial, resurrection, but we also remember he's coming again. We are, we're going to do this only for a time. When Jesus comes again, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper will no longer have a place in our life. We will have something far greater. We will sit at the wedding feast of the Lamb, prepared for his church. So as we conclude, Jesus' resurrection and all the details around it point they point backwards, backwards to see that picture that God had given in the Exodus, that we should then look back from that point with understanding about what God had done at this point at the cross and the resurrection. Michael Morales, writing of the connection, ties together a number of the elements. A garden, he says, a tree in the middle of the garden, two angelic beings, a gardener and a woman, these are all aspects of the Eden narrative, and they're equally present in God's telling of Jesus' passion and resurrection. Perhaps the most telling, even the tomb is located within the garden and described as new, wherein no one had ever been laid. The tomb, in other words, is not associated with death. It is associated with a newness of life. Jesus came out of it, bringing life to those who were dead, ultimately with an indestructible resurrection and the life of the Lord Jesus Christ in the garden. John brings all these elements together on purpose. The Holy Spirit has led him. Here is, as Morales puts it, the theological reality of Jesus' crucifixion death, burial, resurrection, ascension as the new exodus out of the old creation into the new creation, out of this world into the heavenly world. Let's just remember, what happened in the garden? Adam sinned, and therefore he was driven out of the garden, which is to say, in the presence of God. Unless they should return, God sent an angel with a flaming sword that spun about, and they were sent out to the east, Abraham is called out of the east and sent towards the promised land, back toward where the garden was. We see Israel called to come back in. They come back into the land from the east. They could have come in from the south, but God directed them to come in from the east. The tabernacle was set facing to the east so that the door pointed to the east because Adam and sinners were away in the world to the east and the way back to God as it were directionally was coming back west when the tabernacle, the temple was built it was again the opening was set toward the east Jesus was crucified outside Jerusalem on the east side all this pointing to the reality because to come back from the east back into the garden was to come home to God it was the completion of the Exodus. We've talked about, the, the, you've heard the scarlet cord of redemption that runs through Scripture. Yes, indeed, that's a great theme. But the Exodus runs through the Scripture. The unfolding of that scarlet cord, the unfolding of the story of resurrection and, I mean, redemption and re, re, uh, resurrection, all is so that man can come back to God. And it is accomplished through the one who Paul makes clear to us is the second Adam. He brings us back to God. Moses foreshadowed him as he brought the children of Israel back into the land. But Jesus is the fulfillment and it is at the cross and through the tomb and through the resurrection that Jesus opens the way that we come 
completely, finally, the completion of the Exodus. We come back to God in the fullness of fellowship, and it's already a reality. You know what comes next, but not yet fully realized. Because it's when Jesus comes again. We will come fully into the presence of God as Adam once enjoyed, and even more so we come into the presence of God with no possibility of ever being sent away again. We will come with sin defeated. We will come with new hearts and new bodies. We will come into the presence of the Lord prepared to ever dwell with him, all because of what Christ accomplished, the cross and the resurrection. The exodus is complete. And indeed, all those who come to Jesus, Jesus brings to his Father. We enter into the presence of a thrice holy God, and we are accepted and welcome. Children coming to one who is our Father. The exodus completed in Christ. And then we partake of fellowship with God as Adam once did, but even more than he did. Right now we have a foretaste of what will then be the fullness. My friends, Young children, be found in Christ so that when Jesus comes again, you will enter into the glorious presence of God forevermore. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, we do marvel at the completed work of Christ. Father, we marvel at how Christ has involved mere men and women in his plan. Father, we thank you for the picture we've seen in Mary as she is the first to encounter the resurrected Christ. And Father, as John has written these things so that we might believe, Lord, give us faith. And Lord, those who have faith, have a, give us growing faith. And Lord, as we yet dwell below, waiting on the fullness of the realities of the Exodus, Lord, keep us moving onward and upward into the prize of the high calling which is ours in Christ Jesus. To that day, we shall behold him as he is, our God, and you, our Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Stand together. We're going to sing number 269, Welcome, Happy Morning.